Today we're continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And like any good North American in today's culture, I have to ask you a question. And that question is, do you remember the first movie you ever saw in theater? Do you remember that film? What was it? The Lone Ranger. All right. I saw that one, too. They just remade it. It's really good. Uh, Lone Ranger, for many of you, you have your own answers, whether it's a drive-in or a movie theater or whatever. I don't know if you rolled in in a Flintstone car or in a convertible, but whatever the case may have been, we all have our memories. Mine was the movie Jurassic Park. Um, As you know, my dad was into the sciences, and so consequently, it was either going to be Jurassic Park or one of the uh, Star Trek films, and we landed on Jurassic Park because all of us young little boys in my family were looking forward to the gargantuan dinosaurs coming to eat us for lunch and all of the special effects that accompanied that. And so we went one summer as a family to our first ever movie, and this was a big step for us because we had come from fairly conservative circles, and my parents, I don't think, were legalist, but at the same time, they wanted to respect the people they were around, and so often we didn't go to movies. And moreover, my dad was very, very busy. We were also very, very poor, and so it wasn't something we did a lot of. But then at one point in the summer, at one point in time, we decided we were actually going to go to a movie. And it was a great experience. I enjoyed every minute of it. My mom screaming and my brother and I, you know, hearing the dinosaurs walk right by us and things like this. And then I remember one scene in the movie now, which um, comes to bear in today's text in particular. And that was that of um, the opening discussion as to whether or not to create this theme park. Should we build a park full of ancient creatures that became extinct long ago. Dinosaurs give science a chance to explore and people the chance to um, discover and experience. And of course, there's two different sides to the argument. And the entrepreneurial idealist who is played by Richard Attenborough was, you know, arguing in favor of opening the park. Meanwhile, the other side of the debate was carried by the lover of nature scientist Jeff Goldblum. And they're both going back and forth and back and forth about the merits or demerits of this idea. And eventually, the scientist says to the entrepreneur, yeah, 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 you really want to do this. But your scientists were so concerned about whether they could, they never stopped to ask the question whether they should. Today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and actually a couple before that, we're going to ask that same sort of question. You know, we're going to say to ourselves, hey, yeah, 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 we can. But just because we can doesn't mean we should. What determines whether or not we do a thing? This is a question we're going to try to explore today. And for a lot of us as Christians, We sometimes come back with a pat answer and we say, oh, the Bible, you know, the Bible tells me it's our instruction book or manual for life. 
And while that is true, in some sense, there are some very clear directives that we receive from Scripture. There are also many gray areas as well. Spots where we don't have a specific command. Subject matter or or cultural themes that are unique to us that they didn't experience. And we say, what do we do now? Could we do it? Should we do it? How do we know? And so today, as a result of this sermon, I hope to give you some help with that. And so the way we're going to proceed is like this. We're going to look at the text. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to see what issue they're dealing with in their context, in their culture, in their day. And then we're going to take the next step and try to say to ourselves, okay, if if that's how the apostle dealt with their issue, is there anything we can learn from it to deal with our issues? And I think what we'll find is this, is basically as a result of the sermon, we're going to end up with a bit of a decision tree. A paradigm, if you will, for helping you walk through the question, even though I could or could or should I do such a thing. And so at the end of the sermon, what you will see is this. Your tree is going to basically look like this. It's going to have could versus should. And those are the two questions we're going to ask when making a decision. The first one is, could I do such a thing? Could I do it? In order to figure that out, you're going to see there's at least one determining factor. And then there are a couple rubrics or sort of guidelines that we will use to figure out if it fits that criteria or not. And then we're going to do the same thing for should I do it? Okay, if I can do it, should I do it? And we're going to see that there's a determining factor in that. And then there's three rubrics which will lead us to help make that decision. So the question for today is basically simple. It's, you know, can I and should I? And as we ask and answer that question, we'll see how the apostle works it through the issue in this text, and then we'll try to look at how we work it through the issues in our lives as well. So that being said, let me give you a bit of the context before we start reading. Now, It's kind of, we're going to make a jump here. We were in chapter 7. We're going to move forward to chapter 10. And the reason for that is because 8 through 10 is basically this whole section on Christian liberty. Or things that I have the freedom to do, but, you know, what is helpful? What is beneficial? What is responsible? How do I work through this? And he's going to address a couple issues. But at the end of the section, he kind of gives the overarching theme or principle which will guide them through each section. And so that's how I want to work it today, is instead of going starting in the micro, we're going to start in the macro and then move back to the micro. We're going to start with the theme and then look at the issue. So we're going to jump straight from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 10. So in chapter 10, the, the question that's being asked then is basically this. They're saying, Here is our issue, chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. I'm not going to read it quite yet. First, I'm going to give you the context, and then I'll read it. He's going to say, you know, the Corinthians are asking the apostle questions, and they're saying, "Um, apostle, help us out here. We want to know, is it okay for us to eat meat, and not just any meat, but specifically meat that has been used in the worship of a pagan deity? Meat that has been sacrificed as an act of worship to an idol. Because obviously we don't affirm idolatry. That's very clear from the beginning of Scripture to the end. So then if that is the case, can I eat this meat that's sold at 
the supermarket. What will I do? What will I do? And basically, the way it looks like this is, as you've seen in our previous discussions, you know, Corinth is full, absolutely full of idols and idolatry. And so this question is not going to be some philosophical question that remains up here in the land of the, you know, intellectual elite and debate. But this is something that's going to affect them at the very root or ground level. This comes all the way down to where they buy their groceries, (laughs) This is a weekly routine for our family. And as we get bigger and bigger, we're buying more and more groceries and we're filling the closets and pumping out food. And this is something that if we were in Corinth, we would experience on a daily and weekly basis. So for them, the way this looks is basically in their thinking, God's work like this. Okay, God's actually unlike unlike our God, our God, who's completely self-sufficient And sustains himself by himself. Pagan deities have needs. They need to eat. And the way they take care of that is they got all these little human being peons out there. They're subjects who will provide them with food. And the humans do that through worshiping them. And when you worship well, you bring lots of sacrifices. And the more you bring, the more chances you have of having your prayers heard. So you fill your libations with plenty of food and or meat and wine, and perhaps the deity will hear you. Now, of course, this is very, very different from the Christian system. This is a pagan way of thinking, but follow the flow here and you'll see how this pays into their life. In my mind, I think of it, in a sense, a bit like a petting zoo. I don't know if you've ever been to a petting zoo or not, but basically you walk in and there's all these little spoiled goats and hopefully you have something in your hand. Otherwise, what's going to happen? They're going to start butting you in the behind, right? And they're going to let you know, hey, we want some food. And so you go over to the little pellet thing and you put in your 25 cents and you get out the pellets and you come back and you give them the food and everybody's happy. This is the way the pagan deities work. If you provide them with their food, then perhaps the gods will favor you. But if you don't, watch out. They're going to buck you in the behind. And so these Corinthians are going into it, not necessarily the Christians, but other Corinthians. And they're thinking, hey, we've got to keep the gods happy. Make sure to give them plenty of food. Otherwise, our life is going to be messed up. So the sacrificial process works then like this. This is how their market works. This is their form of capitalism, if you will. What they do is they, they get their animal, they bring it to the priest, the priest slaughters it. Now, there's no deep freezes or refrigeration or anything like that, so the meat's got to get used right away. Now, part of that meat is going to be consumed or burnt by fire to the pagan deity. The other part that's left over, the person who brought it is going to say, hey, I'd like to you know, take some of that home for my family, and the priest says, sure. He wraps it up and says, this is for you. But we can only eat so much meat in a few days and there's still a little bit left. So let's take that portion and bring it over here to the uh, meat market and see if I can, you know, get a little bit of return on my investment. I won't get what I paid for the giant beast, but at least I'll get something back. It's a little bit like trading in a used vehicle, if you will. You get something back, not as much as the dealer is going to resell it for, but you get something. And so there's this meat in the supermarket that's been sacrificed to the idols. Now, in the United States, when we go grocery shopping, we have the Food and Drug Administration, and it does us handy little favors like putting labels on the back of our food. 
So if you have some sensitivity, say to nuts or some other allergen, you can turn the package over and you read it and you say, oh, cool, nut free. That's for us. Or you try to get by with a generic brand and you turn it over and you say, oh, shoot, packaged in a facility that processes nuts and eggs and whatever else. Say, okay, I have to buy the more expensive one. Here we go. Well, so too in Corinthian culture that people would go to the meat market and the unfortunate thing is there's no FDA or anything else. So when they turn the meat over, they don't have any clue. Has this been offered to idols or not? You know, it'd be really nice for the Christian if it had a neat little stamp that said, you know, processed in an idol-free facility, right? Does not contain any idolatry whatsoever. Or it would say, yes, this has been cross-contaminated and might actually have been used in idol worship. But you don't have that. You've just got meat on the shelf and it all looks the same. And nobody can tell. But look, if you're a first century Corinthian and you're trying to save on your budget, you understand that some meats are going to be cheaper than others. And more than likely, the meats offered to idols are going to be cheaper because they have a limited shelf life. They're not brand new. They're not out walking around in the fields. They've already been slaughtered and they have to be used in a certain amount of time. And so you can actually save money by buying this meat. So there's a bit of a motive going into it. And Christians are going to go back and forth either way. And they're going to be like, man, you know, one group is going to say, hey, meat's meat. It's all meat to me. You know, baste it, broil it, butcher it, fry it, whatever. Tastes the same. Let's eat it. And other people are like, no, no, no. Now, wait a minute. Hold on here. Let's think about what we're putting in our mouths. Yes, you consume it. But where did it come from? How is it processed? Is that ethical? Am I communicating something by taking part in this process? Does where I stand actually communicate where I stand? What's going on here? Hey, look, as Christians, we have meals that we say mean certain things. We have communion or the Lord's Supper in which we come to the table and we say this is a symbolic act and it represents the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And by taking part of it, you say that you believe and affirm this and are committed to it. Is it just meat? Or is it something more? As I hear these people in the church, I could just imagine them going back and forth and arguing. Some saying, hey, just eat it, whatever. Don't worry about it. Don't ask any questions. And others are like, no, 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 no. Hold on. We need to think about this. And realistically, I think you could very easily, if you're in a high school debate class, argue either side pretty forcefully and pretty strongly, pretty strongly. And so here's the Apostle Paul now called in to answer this question. Should we eat meat or not? And he's going to walk a very, very fine line and try to find a balance between their religious freedom and their liberty and their responsibility as well. Could we eat it? Should we eat it? Let's find out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. Now, oops, stop, time out, pause. I want to give one more little caveat. This is kind of cool. You'll see here the page number listed as 1218. That's in your brand new ESV Bible. If you have one at the back, uh, if you need a Bible, it's blue, just like the other ones, which were worn out. We have some new ones now. 
Now, you'll notice it's a different translation. Uh, We were using the NIV. The NIV 84 previously that we had is no longer being published. There is a newer version of the NIV, but we're, I believe, for my purposes and for our purposes, going to use the ESV on Sunday morning. Now, if you have questions about that, I invite you to come this Friday night from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. in the adult wing of the church, in the 300 wing. And what we'll do is we will walk through some of the differences in Bible translations and Bible translation theory and, and, and transmission history, how we got the Bible, how did we arrive where we're at. So, you know, you walk into a Christian bookstore today and there's pink Bibles and camouflage Bibles, black Bibles, blue Bibles, teenage Bibles, women Bible, men Bible, whatever. How did we get here? And I will try to walk you through that and by the end give you hopefully a better comprehension of how we got our Bible, why they're translated as they are, and how they can be, which one will be most useful to you. So that's this Friday night. You can find more information online. Now, that aside, uh, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Should we eat meat or should we not? Let's find out. In response to this question the Corinthians asked, the apostle writes, Well, all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but instead the good of his neighbor. Eat, then, whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. However, if one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you're just and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why would my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So, here's the overall principle. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators then of me as I am of Christ. So in other words, can we eat this meat? Well, sure. Eat up. So long as you don't do anything to bother your brother. Now, what a great principle is this, right? I mean, how many people who have ever been parents, seen parents, or, you know, (laughs) at some point in life experienced children desired this to look 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 there are many things in our house that you're allowed to do so do whatever you want that you're allowed to do that's just fine but if it bothers your brother stop yes you can do that but if it bothers your brother please be considerate just because you love him it may be too loud he may be studying he may be whatever just back off a little bit yes you're allowed to but maybe you can do it somewhere else maybe you could do it in a different way but give him a break just because you love him would you please consider your brother 
And that's all the apostle is saying in this section on meat is, hey, look, you know what? Yeah, you're allowed to eat it, but you know what? Even more than your own rights, you should value your brother and sister in Christ. So much so that you're willing to sacrifice your freedom on their behalf. Now, I think this is a great paradigm for us, but as modern Americans, we know this can be very, very tricky because so many of our uh, forefathers have gone on before us to sacrifice nearly everything they had and sometimes everything so that we can have individual rights and freedoms. And let me say, I am so thankful for that. I love living in the United States of America and I'm very thankful for the people who sacrificed and gone before me. But what has happened, I think, a little bit in my generation and younger is we've begun, come to the point where we take these things for granted and we've upped the notch so far that we've come to a point where we said, yeah, not only do we have individual freedoms, but man, we have emphasized them to the point where we have a sense of entitlement and we demand to do whatever pleases us most, regardless of how it affects anyone else. Because that's my right. I got a right to do whatever I want and not even care a bit about you. And that is too much. That is going too far. That is making your rights become an idol. And the funny thing is, yes, as Americans we have rights, but as Christians, we do not. By becoming a Christian, you have in fact said that I surrender my rights. That I give them up. That I lay them at the foot of the cross and allow God to tell me what to do in every area of my life. I no longer have any right or control whatsoever. I give it up. I am now free from sin, but I'm a slave to Christ. And therefore, I willingly, intentionally give up and yield my rights to Him. You don't have any rights. Look, Christ himself did the same thing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the apostle encourages us, hey, have this same mind in, among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was God himself, he didn't even count equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself. He gave up all of these rights, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of all things, men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and of all things, even to death on the cross. You want to talk about giving up your rights? He had the right to sit back there in glory and watch the rest of us go to hell. But he chose not to. He gave up his rights. He sacrificed himself. And in that same line, as a Christ follower... The apostle is saying, hey, you may like meat and you may like it a lot, but man, you've got to be willing to give it up. And I don't care how big of a carnivore you are, how much money you want to save, your brother is more important. Be willing to sacrifice your rights. Now, here's a funny thing that happens, too, in this process. Uh, last week, I told a little bit of a story about uh, our family and our allergy issues. And I was going on and on about how much I liked nuts. And then about how I had to give those up for the sake of safety in our house. And then we came home for lunch that day. And what my oldest child said to me, Dad, I didn't even know you liked nuts. I was like, wow, look how far we've come. You know, we've actually come to the point 
where my children don't even realize I have this desire. Evidently, our giving up of nuts has been effective to the point of where they don't even feel like we're giving up or missing anything at all. And that's one of the cool things I think about being a Christ follower is when you look at it from the outside, you can be like the rich young ruler and say, whoa, this is way too much to give up. I can't handle it. But if you actually move forward in faith and give it a try, what you will find is that the Holy Spirit works in you to the extent that all of a sudden you're no longer so sad at these sacrifices, but you're instead happy to give them up. Because you realize the greater good, the highest treasure is pursuing Christ himself and giving up these little doinky things along the way are not such a big deal. And so much so then that following him, sacrifice becomes your service and it's a wonderful thing because he changes your affections. That which you desire, that which you want actually change. So you, yes, are called the sacrifice, but in the end, It ends up being what you want to do anyways, because God changes you. So here in this passage, what's happening then is the apostle is telling them, yeah, you're free to eat it. You can eat, but you may have to give it up for the sake of your brother. And yes, that may cost you something. And so we have to ask ourselves the same question is, hey, are we willing to sacrifice something that we really like for the sake of our brothers? Just so we don't offend them. I mean, yeah, we know we know it's not a big thing, but for them it is. So we have to give it up. Just because we love them. And that's hard. Because we want to come running down the hallway and say, Yeah, I had it first. It's mine. And the Lord says, No, no, no. Just for the sake of your brother, give it up. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So, it's not a moral issue. What are we going to do? Could we do it? Should we do it? How do we move forward in the Christian life? Here's the paradigm I was telling you about earlier. Let's, let's address the first question. Could I do it? Could I? I want to. I'm interested. It looks good to me. Could I do it? And there's a few questions to get to that point that you have to ask. And the first of which is these. Basically, here's a determining factor. Is it a sin issue? Is it a sin issue? You know, if you want to have an extramarital affair, sorry, no, can't do it. Why? Well, it's a sin issue. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. There's a long list of sins. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but if you follow the New Testament, you will see that there are some things that are very clearly outlined as sins that we simply can't do. If we've said we were Christians, then we've said we won't do these things. They're sins. So we can't sin. Okay, that makes it clear. That makes it simple. But then we come into these other issues, which are like cultural things that we don't always associate with a clear biblical command. So, for example, I would say you need to come to an issue and say, is this a cultural issue? You know, is this a cultural issue? And if it happens to be a cultural issue, then my advice to you, and I think what you're seeing in this meat passage with regard to Jews and Gentiles, is that you respect the host culture. You know, when in Rome do as as the Romans would, yet without sin, if you will. You know, respect the host culture. So if you're in Scotland, you wear a kilt. If you are on the West Coast, you wear shorts. And if you are in India, you wear pants. 
One of my best friends is an incredible New Testament scholar by the name of Subash, and he leads missions teams, he teaches at seminaries, he plants churches, he does all these things, and yet it's so funny for someone who's so mature, sometimes he'll come to me and say, man, this one mission team came, and their guys wore shorts, and it just bothered me so much, you know? But that's his culture, and in his area, it's just offensive for men to show their legs, and I think if we were honest, for some of us, it would be offensive for us men to show our legs, right? I mean, maybe you can get away with that and your legs look good. I'm not preaching against shorts today, I promise. But what I'm saying is this, is in some cultures, some things communicate certain things. And you've got to be mindful and respectful of that. If you're in California, shorts, flip-flops, Hawaiian shirt, whatever. But if you're in India, that may come across wrong. So be respectful. Be respectful of the host culture. Okay, so first of all, is it a sin issue? Second of all, is it a cultural issue? Can I do it? Let me give you another example. We have a female friend who works overseas in an Islamic culture. Now, this person um, has to ask the question, you know, how will I dress? Because there are some very strict guidelines for the nationals at times. And also, even if they're not official laws, there are unofficial laws, which are just as much forceful and effective. And so for her, as a, a foreigner, she has to ask, for example, where will I wear a hijab or a headscarf? Will I wear one of these? Is it a cultural issue? And that's a difficult question because, you know, everyone wears one, so you would say, yeah, it's their culture. But at the same time, it's also a religious symbol that communicates which side of the fence they're on as far as it goes with Islam. And so if you see this headscarf, you assume they're Islamic. So it's interesting to see how she walks through this issue because it's cultural and religious and it kind of blends and overlaps. And what she's told us that she ends up doing is basically saying, I'm going to dress more conservative than just about any woman out there. You know, I'm going to have I'm going to be covered from head to toe. You won't see any shape or form makeup or anything else, but I'm not going to wear a headscarf so that I don't attract unnecessary attention. But at the same time, I don't communicate the wrong thing. And this is how she tries to walk the line. And it's very difficult for her because she can, obviously, she can see it both ways. She goes, well, maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't. But this is where she landed. And that's why it's so tricky for us as modern believers is because there's these things which aren't clearly spelled out and they could be cultural, they could be religious. What are they? Meat, sacrifice to idols. What is it? For some people, it's just no big thing. For others, it's a religious thing. And so they have to be careful. So, is it a sin issue? If so, stop. If not, then you ask, is it a cultural issue? If it is, respect your host culture as much as possible. And finally, if it's not a sin or a cultural issue, then it's a conscience issue. Then it's a conscience issue. In which case, you are free to do so. And then the question becomes, yes, I can, but now should or ought I to go forward with this? And the way that you can answer that question is like this. There's basically one determining factor. There's one overarching principle that encompasses all of the questions regardless of what topic they might be. And that principle is found in the 31st verse of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Should I do something? What is the determining factor that will determine all of it? It's this. It is whether you eat or drink 
Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, I brought an umbrella with me today and I actually forgot it backstage. So you can imagine, if you will, if I had this umbrella and what I would do is I would pop it open. And what you would see is there's the shaft or the handle and then there's all these little spires that go out to the side. What I would say in the Christian life and the theme of Scripture is basically this, that the shaft and the overarching umbrella, the grand canopy that encloses everything, is the glory of God. Oh, wow. Look at that. Okay, here we go. So, ah. keep imagining. <laughs> Got it. All right. So the shaft is the glory of God, right? Everything needs to fit under this umbrella. But if you look at it, there's all these little spires that go out and there's all these other little things we can do. So, for example, can I serve my wife? Yes, that brings glory to God. Can I, you know, serve at my church? Yes, that brings glory to God. Can I serve in my community? Yes, that brings glory to God. What about evangelism? Yes, I can do that. What about uh, discipleship? Yes, I can do that. But what about sin? No, I can't. That goes outside the umbrella. That goes the wrong way. I think, and I think the uh, Westminster Catechism and others would say, is that the theme of Scripture is, in fact, the glory of God. What is the chief end of creation? What is the chief end of humanity? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if this item that you're considering contributes to that or fits into that category, in which case you can and probably should do it if it brings glory to God. Now, let me give you those three rubrics that I was referring to. The first of which is, do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy it? That's actually a real question that we can ask that will determine whether or not we do a thing. Micah 6, eight says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good, but to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. The theme of Ecclesiastes basically goes like this. In chapter 9, verse 7, he, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the one, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That's the point of your existence. And so, yes, go at it full bore. If you enjoy that meat, then have a barbecue. Man, enjoy it and bring glory to God. But while you're doing so, you also need to ask a couple other questions. Because remember, not only are you allowed to do it, but you need to think about your brothers and sisters too. And the other two questions then you have to ask is not only do I enjoy it, but does it build others up? Chapter 10, verses 23 through 24 it says it like this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Therefore, let no one seek his own good, but the good 
of his neighbor. You need to ask the question, hey, yeah, I can do it, but is it beneficial to my neighbor? I can enjoy this, but does this build them up? If so, then I'm free to go for it. But if not, I should probably hold back. So first of all, do I enjoy it? And secondly, does it build others up? Finally, the last question you should ask is, does it bring people to Christ? Does it bring people to Christ? Verse 33 says it like this. It says, hey, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, why? Why do I do this? So that they can be saved. The motivating factor for the Apostle Paul is the missionary zeal. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm becoming all things to all people so that they might get saved. So when I consider whether or not I do such a thing, whatever it might be, I'm asking myself these questions. Can I do it? Well, is it a sin? If so, then I stop. If not, then I say, is it a cultural issue? If it's a cultural issue, I respect the host culture. And if it's not, then it's a conscience issue. And if it's a conscience issue, then I ask myself, do I enjoy it? You know, does this build me up? And then after that, I say, does it build others up? Or does it have the potential to lead someone to Christ? And after you've walked through those questions, I think you're well down the road as to figuring out what you could or couldn't do. So let me give you some examples then, and I'm just going to list off a list, and we can think through them a little bit in our own minds, or I can help you walk through them. But here's some examples in our culture of issues where the Bible doesn't necessarily speak directly to, but we have to take these things and apply them to this paradigm. Okay, and this could offend you whether, depending on where you're at. If you're like someone who says, no, 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 I'm going to err on the side of caution and not do anything, then you're going to say, whoa, that's not a gray area. Or if you're someone who's over here is like, yeah, I like to enjoy everything, you're going to say, what? You mean I can't do that? So let me just list the issues, and then you can run them through this paradigm and see where you land on each one. Here's a few. Alcohol. Can I drink it? Should I drink it? What is it? Food. Food? Well, sure. For example, listen to, this, listen to this scenario. Okay, let's pretend you've got a really cute little 12, 13-year-old chubby little girl, right? And she's cute as can be. And her whole life, she's grown up eating ice cream. And she just loves ice cream, and her parents love her. And they think, you know what? So what? You know, she's cute. She's special. It doesn't matter. And we like to bless her, so we're going to give her ice cream. And she develops this affection for ice cream. And then all of a sudden, she gets to junior high. And she starts looking at the magazines that all her friends are talking about. And it shows these unrealistic views of a female body. And she begins to equate that with her worth. And she says, oh, okay, I get it. So people who are valuable, people who are, um, you know, important look like this. Now I'm going to try to look like this. And her parents still take her out for ice cream, but they don't know. She goes and throws it up in the hallway or in the, in the bathroom. And she begins to struggle and she has these eating disorders and her body dramatically changes and everything's out of whack. And all of a sudden she's imbalanced and she has physiological issues, psychological issues, spiritual issues, and all sorts of things going on. And you come to her and say, hey, you want to go out for some ice cream? No way. That is not going to help for her at all, is it? Let's go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. Is that helpful to her? No. Just like it wouldn't be if you took someone who struggles with alcohol out for a beer. That's not a good idea, right? 
So there are some questions you're going to have to ask here. Different people, different struggles. You may not struggle with it. And you can go eat ice cream all you want and you can stay skinny. Good for you. But that's not true for everyone. And some people, this is a real issue. So yeah, even ice cream could be an issue. What are some more? Well, movies, dancing, Dungeons and Dragons, Harry Potter, yoga, meditation, music, tobacco, the lottery, observing the Sabbath, Christmas trees, Easter eggs, Tai Chi, Kung Fu, firearms, all sorts of things. Christians can fall on either side of the fence and say, whoa, that is a sin. With those, you do bad things. And others can say, no, actually, with that, I interact with my unsaved neighbor. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't swallow it. But it's a means of getting to the end. And I have actually led people to Christ via that vehicle. And you say, whoa, how does that work? That's so weird. I don't understand what's going on. And we all come to different spots on these different things. And it's tricky business. And we have to walk this fine line as well. There are areas in the scripture where we don't have a specific command. And we just have to walk through this paradigm. And ultimately, the question is this. Then you ask yourself and you say, hey, you know what? It's not how far can I go or how much can I get away with. But instead... What will bring the most glory to God? And whatever the answer to that latter question is, that is what you go with. What will bring the most glory to God? Am I enjoying his gifts that he's given me? Am I building up his kingdom, his brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I adding to the number and bringing others to faith? Then yes, go for it. But if not, you need to stop. You need to stop. Let me give you one very practical example from my life a long time ago. Um, when I was in college, I was in a business school, and we had this long semester project. Uh, it was a simulation based on some trends and analysis and market stuff. And we worked really hard writing these formulas and assimilating our data and blah, blah. And we got to the end, and we did pretty well. And so there were these guys in my class that were part of a fraternity you know, and they were pretty good guys, actually. These were the upstanding guys. You know, there's very, various versions of fraternities, you know, that all have their own reputation. This was kind of the preppy, elite, whatever fraternity that was kind of the leaders on campus. And these guys invited me to their party with a special guest pass. I'm like, ooh, you know, I'm special. And then I had to think about it and say, whoa, 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 hold on. Whew, let's run this through the grid, right? Because am I going to it just because I feel special about it? Like I want to be cool? In which case, that's not the right motivation, right? But these are some guys that I've developed a relationship with, and I know that some of them are very far from Christ. I could further that relationship. This might be an opportunity outside of the work environment to actually build some rapport and establish a relationship, and we could go from there. Yeah, but I don't really know what happens at these parties. I mean, I've seen stuff on TV where there's binge drinking and there's, you know, date rape and gang rape and all sorts of horrible things like that. I certainly wouldn't want to be associated with that. But if there's some people there that are really hurting and they have a lot of questions, they need someone to talk to, then I can evangelize them and share the gospel. What do I do? And I went back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, to tell you the truth, I went to the party. I went, and it was amazing what I saw. You know, I mean, 
for the most part, things were under control. And I'm not saying every party is like this, but I took a risk, right? Because if something bad would have happened and the police came in, all of a sudden my picture's on TV and I'm part of it as well. And obviously I don't want that. But at the same time, there were some Christians there who I was like, oh, you're here. And what is that you have in your hand? <laughs> okay. And the guy's like, you know, and, or whatever else. And they kind of feel a little bit guilty. I didn't even have to say anything. They knew who I was and the other clubs I were involved in. And they weren't, they were campus ministries. And immediately they saw me and they're like, whoo. And all of a sudden <laughs> they turned a little red. And then I began to talk to some other people that had maybe one beer and they'd loosen up a little bit and they began to talk and I could share my faith. And then eventually when things started getting a little more rowdy, I left. And I didn't go back ever again because I felt like I had done my job. I had, I had taken that step. I went to this thing. I built the relationship. And if they want more relationship, they can have it, but just not necessarily in that context. And so this is how I walked that line. And it was really tricky for me because I had to say, you know, hey, what risk am I willing to take for the gospel? What do I, you know, if somebody drives by and they see me going to this thing, what are they going to assume? What am I going to communicate? Does where you stand communicate where you stand? What's going on here? There's a lot of questions involved in this process. And I'm not saying I did the perfect thing or whatever else. I'm just saying this is one issue that I had to walk through. And I'm going to respect you and I hope you're going to respect me regardless of where we land on that sort of thing. Whether you're like, nope, don't ever go. Or you're like, yeah, go every week. You know? Whatever. We'll all land somewhere and we need to be considerate of each other and where we land. So, could versus should. What determines whether or not we should do such a thing? Well, I think the text is pretty clear. Verse 23 just says, hey, all things are lawful. Okay? You can. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. But not all things are beneficial. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Why are you doing this? What's your motivation? For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, whatever you do, it all falls under the same umbrella. Do it all for the glory of God. Father, we're so thankful for your creation, for your goodness, and for your love. And Lord, we struggle sometimes how to experience and enjoy that. We wonder what we can do, what we should do, what's best. And everybody has different experiences and different opinions, different histories, different struggles. And Lord, as we walk this fine line in trying to balance our freedom and our responsibility, we pray that you'd give us great wisdom and great grace. Wisdom to know where to land and grace to accept and love those who land differently than us. Help us to love one another, respect our brother, and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.